it's got to be in some sense bottom up but encouraged by top down you have to get a sufficient community together so that people don't feel isolated Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Welcome, everyone, to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I'm Kiva White, the Black Guy. And I'm John Kepner, the white guy, and uh, Kiva and I share the love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for knowledge, what we try to impart in these podcasts, something that Kiva calls the K factor. Yes. And the goal of these podcasts is really to promote racial and social equity through honest and deliberate and oftentimes tough tough conversations, something that we call courageous conversations. John and I have found over the years of engaging in these courageous conversations that we have gained a deeper understanding and respect for one another's perspectives around racism and our own personal responsibilities in that regard. And it really led to this uh, development of this uh, platform that we have now, uh, where we invite guests to share their honest experiences and learnings. We hope that these conversations will help you all uh, in your own personal journeys as we walk through some of the challenging moments of our modern society. So John, who is our guest today? Well, our guest is a return guest, uh, Ray Solomon, who's a uh, uh, colleague of mine, friend of mine, and we go way back to uh, college together. And um, uh, Ray, I'm not gonna go through all of his credentials, but Ray is a, an academic leader. He was the, uh, is now retired. Dean of the Law School at Rutgers Camden and later Provost of uh, Rutgers Camden. And um, this is part two uh, podcast that we had with with Ray a week ago. Uh, And uh, we got into such meaty uh, material with Ray that we asked him to come back for for this part two. In that podcast, which I encourage all of you to go back and listen to if you you haven't or or watch, um, Ray talked about growing up as a young Jewish boy in uh, Arkansas, uh, the eastern part of Arkansas, and um, delved deeply into a historical event in his hometown, his home county, uh, uh, called the Elaine Massacre, in which up, upwards of 200 uh, Black people were massacred. Uh, it all started on September 19th, 1919, over 100 years ago. And he talked deeply about that. And as a um, legal historian, uh, both a lawyer and a PhD in history, he gave us uh, an in-depth um, uh, description of how that led to a, a major U.S. Supreme Court case that really laid the foundation for the seminal case of uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So, uh, and then that led into um, you know, our years together at Wesleyan University. Tonight, we're going to jump off of both of those and talk about uh, some things later in his career. Uh, Kiva, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Ray, why don't we switch gears just a little bit and, and let's talk about, about your career. You know, what led you to obtain, you know, two terminal degrees uh, in law and then you have a Ph.D. in history? And how did all of that kind of mold into um, some of your academics that you teach and then your academic executive leadership? at Rutgers. Well, thanks. First, let me thank you again for asking me back. Um, And uh, so um, my, um, it's hard to know how how I ended up with uh, two degrees. Uh, I I was a history undergraduate major and I I, uh, thought when I, uh, my father was a lawyer, uh, I sort of thought that when I got out of of uh, my uh, undergraduate that I would uh, uh, become a lawyer, uh, applied to law school my third year, my, my senior year rather of, of uh, college at Wesleyan. And um, I was accepted at a couple of places. Actually, um, I would have been a classmate of John's again, I think. Uh, uh, I was uh, admitted to Penn. 
but uh, it was 1968, and uh, uh, the we our class lost uh, deferments, uh, and it was pre-lottery. So um, I uh, one of the things about being in a small town in, in, in Arkansas was that my uh, good friend's mother was the uh, secretary of the draft board. So I <laughs> knew I knew when I was going to be drafted, um, which was October 1st. So it made no sense to start uh, uh, to start law school. And uh, so I went to uh, I looked around and I didn't want to take my chances uh, with uh, volunteering in the army. Um, it was the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, and I would have been in Bill Clinton's National Guard unit, but um, uh, I uh, decided that that was uh, the, the, the rules were you six months of active duty. And then every month you had to come home to drill and all of the East Coast, uh, uh, all of the East Coast units were filled. So it was no way I was going to get in the National Guard, but the Navy had a two-year program where you did two years and then you were out. You did a year first of reserve training. So that's what I did. I got in the Navy Reserve. I was enlisted man. Um, and uh, those were momentous years for college campuses while I was in the Navy. And uh, 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 the Cambodian invasion happened while I was on a ship in, uh, in the uh, Gulf of Tompkin. Um, and as a result, we had to stay uh, for an extra month uh, before sailing back. We were on an emergency deployment. We, our ship, when I got on the ship uh, in 69, in the fall of, uh, actually it was the fall of 69, um, it, it was, um, it had just come back from Vietnam and we were supposed to stay there for a whole year, but then uh, there was an emergency deployment and I ended up, um, going to, uh, you know, we, we ended up in, in the Far East, uh, but it was only for three months. And then I came, um, I got got out of the <coughs> service. Um, and uh, while I while while I was on while I was on in reserve uh, duty, reserve training for that year, I took some graduate courses in history at Memphis State. Uh, what was then Memphis State, uh, now is University of Memphis. And uh, I uh, decided that I really, you know, that I really wanted to go to the university, continue my university career. And so I applied to schools um, and ended up uh, being accepted at the University of Chicago's history department to study urban history with Richard Wade, the foremost American urban historian. But um, uh, I think there were probably 10 of us that were accepted to study with him. And uh, uh, when we got there, he was gone. Uh, he'd gone to CCNY to run George McGovern's campaign. Uh, and um, so we, I ended up uh, looking around for a field and a, a brilliant young uh, historian had been hired by the law school at Chicago, the University of Chicago, uh, Stanley Katz, and um, one of the, my professors said, you should go over and talk to him. And I ended up uh, uh, talking with him and deciding to do both degrees. And it was also a horrible market for history. Uh, in those days, nobody was getting hired. And, uh, mm -hmm. and when I, uh, uh, first year of law school, I actually loved it. I had a, I, I really liked law school. And it, it, I mean, if you're going to be a legal historian, it really only takes the first year because you learn to think like a lawyer and then you can sort of do what you want. But, um, uh, but I decided both because of uh, professional opportunity and then uh, because of my real interest, uh, just to go ahead and get the law degree. So that's how I ended up with two degrees. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Huge accomplishment. That's, yeah. that's awesome. That's so, awesome. So as you uh, fast forward now, you're dean of a law school and you were dean for like 14 years or something like that? 16 years. 16 years. So mm -hmm. so you had an opportunity over 16 years of leadership to, 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 to do some real um, significant things. Um, as a leader, how you know our subject here is is social diversity, race, racial equity, that sort of thing. 
Um, how did those things impact your leadership uh, in areas like employment and curriculum development and um, you know development of faculty, recruitment of faculty, um, from the different perspectives that a dean has to look at? Well, I, I think that, um, I mean, it, it, it's certainly on, um, I mean, I was uh, very uh, involved with uh, admissions, obviously, and probably that's the easiest thing to, to, to talk about. Um, as you know, the Supreme Court, um, going back into the, uh, I guess it's the late 70s, uh, had, uh, or earlier, uh, had, had said that as long as it, there weren't quotas, that affirmative action uh, was justifiable um, and uh, was constitutional. And uh, Rutgers was, uh, the, you know, there were two Rutgers law schools, one in Newark and one in Camden. I was the dean of the Camden Law School. Newark had been um, really the pioneer, uh, a pioneer in, in, uh, in, in uh, diversity. Uh, they, they probably had one of the most uh, uh, diverse classes of any of the, of the major law schools um, and uh, major public state law schools. Uh, we were, we probably were around 18, 20% of, of people of, of color when I, uh, it was a little bit smaller when I came probably, it's probably around 15%. And uh, we, we pursued it. Uh, I mean, we, we, we tried uh, to, uh, to increase uh, minority participation. Uh, we did various, there were programs where really pipeline programs, think of it that way, because, um, you know, the, the uh, at, at, at admissions level, you're really competing um, on money. I mean, is, to be honest, uh, you know, it takes scholarship money to, to, uh, 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 to attract students and Rutgers did not have, what we had going for us was low tuition early on in my deanship uh, when the state was supplying, probably when I got there, the state was supplying around 50% of the operating budget of the law school. By the time I left, it was below 18%. Wow. Um, so That's tuition. Tremendous. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, probably 10 years earlier, uh, the state was supplying 75, uh, 80, 85% of the operating uh, budget. So uh, things changed dramatically and our tuition, um, our our best years, my early years in 2000 to 2005, our best admission years were uh, because both there was a great demand to go to law school. So it was really a, a buyer's market um, and, um, or a seller's market. Uh, um, it was a seller's market, excuse me. Uh, and, uh, but, but the other thing was Rutgers in-state tuition was $8,000 and out-of-state was $12,000, $13,000. By the time I left, it was, Twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars in state, and thirty-five out of state. So um, we were able for kids who had who who were from Texas, California, whatever, who wanted to go east. And Rutgers has an excellent reputation. Uh, sort of the farther you go from New Jersey is a joke. Uh, that that it uh, we were able to buy their tuition down with very little money. Uh, to and and we were able to recruit at schools, um, you know, historically black colleges at at, at uh, uh, colleges that had large Hispanic populations, Asian populations, and we were quite successful um, in those early years. And um, but uh, it it got uh, once our tuition got higher and we needed more money. Uh, it, it became harder to compete and, and, and we weren't able to as much. Uh, I mean, students of color are quite justifiably price sensitive. And um, you know, what the, what, because they're not second and third generation 
uh, for many in many cases are not second and third generation uh, professionals or children of professionals or what have you, and they're having to borrow money and that's expensive. And uh, uh, so uh, keeping it, we're, we're still among the more affordable law schools uh, given, but but the the whole market for legal education has totally changed, especially since 08. Uh, uh, it's dramatically different than it was. Uh, faculty recruitment is always difficult. I mean, every school is trying to compete for uh, uh, faculty, and um, it you know what you're being a law professor. What's valued in being a law professor is not just being a good teacher, but it's also being a good oh, scholar and yeah. uh, people finding people who are talented who want to commit to that kind of life of, of, of writing um, is difficult. Um, we, we, were, uh, we were successful and, and quite, you know, we had uh, a number of uh, really terrific faculty who left and went to other, uh, other places. I mean, um, uh, it, it, uh, good faculty are in demand at, at at universities uh, all over. And, and um, so uh, we, you know, but we were, we were able to, we, we, we were able to diversify more than it had been, but sort of not at the level that we want. And it's still an ongoing struggle. And, um, you know, the Supreme Court's uh, uh, jurisprudence has made both recruitment of faculty and of students more difficult. Um, because um, it, I mean, they've, they, they sort of uh, cut back. They didn't eliminate quote unquote affirmative action, but they, they cut it back uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, you know, uh, Justice O'Connor, maybe it's a little bit more than 10, uh, Justice O'Connor, O'Connor in an opinion opined that 25 years from now, we won't need this. Well, that's not true. Uh, and, uh, but it, it, it meant that th there was more surveillance and there are now lawsuits going on. Um, Asian students who uh, I think are claiming that the admissions uh, practices are skewed against them. Um, uh, because they favor, they, it, it's not just taking uh, test scores, but looking holistically at the whole file. Um, and given this Supreme Court, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure if given a case, they're going to uh, argue that they're going to they're find, if they're going to overturn Roe, they're probably likely to overturn uh, DeFunis and Baki and all the progeny of that. Do you do you think professional schools and law schools in particular were ahead of the curve, ahead of society in terms of um, social equity uh, at the level of uh, you know recruiting students, uh, yeah. the the nature of the curriculum, those sorts of things? Uh, when I was in law way back when you and I were in law school, yeah. I was in law school a little bit ahead of you, uh, we had a smattering of women in our class. Uh, but it was clear to me that the, the law schools were going to rapidly admit more women. And indeed, within just a few years, there were 50, you know, 50% levels. And then that right. translates into the, you know, into legal practice too. Um, uh, do, do you think that, that uh, the law schools have been a pace setter? Uh, yes and no. I mean, that I think they, they both, um, uh, I think they respond more quickly. They're, they're, they're more agile than, than certain parts of universities in that, <clears throat> I mean, we don't, we don't have labs and, you know, it, 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 the kinds of scholarship we do is fairly cheap as, as universities uh, go. Uh, so I think that we, we've been, a, we were able to shift, I think also given the nature of law and social change, that that you're right. Your question is right. Uh, I do agree with that. That that uh, uh, we we were uh, we were ahead of other probably parts of society and parts of, uh, of law. 
but I think also we we you know we respond uh, to a certain extent to the market uh, to to the to the law firm market and they respond mm-hmm. to the business market. Yeah, right, right. And so so that's a, a kind of a break on that. Um, but I think that uh, we uh, that I mean. I mean, we probably are pulled and pushed, <laughs> uh, but I think that that it it happens that when we expanded the number of women, when we expanded uh, the number of people of color, um, the uh, firms were who were getting pressure from clients and I mean from their from corporations and all to hire responded as well, and they were delighted in many cases to see well-trained, highly qualified, uh, uh, diverse candidates coming out mm-hmm. uh, of law schools, being produced by law schools and thus uh, hired them. Um, how they treated them is another issue, uh, but, but, yeah. uh, but I think that they, uh, that, that they were uh, uh, fighting. When I was at Northwestern, uh, General Motors, uh, the, the general counsel of General Motors uh, who had been a, a lawyer in, in Chicago, uh, offered, I think I, I, it was a huge sum of money to five or six law schools uh, to uh, diversify the profession, uh, you know, to diversify their class and thus create opportunities. And um, uh, Northwestern, it wasn't, it was just as I was being hired, they'd gotten this, so it wasn't my idea, but I, I was sort of in charge of implementing the idea. Um, Northwestern, most most of the schools, Harvard and Chicago, and I think a couple of others, used the money for, for fellowships, as sort of along the lines that I was saying oh. earlier, got to, mm. to, to help recruit people. Um, one of the professors at Northwestern is really wonderful uh, person, a very progressive person, came up with the idea that we should hire a, a, a minority ombudsperson, basically, um, someone who could help to um, mentor and, uh, uh, you know, help to guide students, uh, students of color who were coming in, who, as I said, you know, many of these uh, were people, first of all, who had not been at, at majority institutions pre- previously. Their college careers had been at uh, HBCUs or something like that, or people who um, had, had uh, uh, you know, were first-generation college students for whom uh, the whole socialization process was extremely difficult. And so... Why not hire somebody uh, who could who could help to be a, a person that those students could go to uh, and um, and talk to and mentor and and create a sense of community among not just among those students but among among the whole school but but uh, really um, looking at this and we hired uh, a, a woman uh, who. Just was wonderful. Uh, her name's Teresa Cropper. She had been Stevie Wonder's lawyer and had helped uh, lobby for the uh, for the Martin Luther King National Holiday, which we had uh, yesterday. And um, she was just brilliant. She was able to do, I, I mean, to give tough love when it was needed and to give soft love when it was needed. Mm-hmm. And she knew who to who, who could do it. She helped and she really created some very strong uh, close knit communities. And uh, actually the governor of Illinois now, uh, 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 Jay Pritzker, uh, I mean, um, yeah, uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker, um, he, he was a, a, obviously a white son of, of, of billionaires. Um, and um, he uh, he was very involved with Teresa and that group of students mm-hmm. when he was in law school. I mean, so it was not just, you know, it wasn't a, a segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did your experience, uh, last uh, part one, we talked a bit about your experience at Wesleyan. 
And you referenced the fact that uh, when we were admitted, we had maybe one black in our class. And by the time we were seniors, uh, uh, 10% of the student population were people of color. And, and that was a, you know, that was an that was a policy decision by the university. Mm. Uh, and I mean, did, did, did that, did your experience at Wesleyan in that environment, you mentioned your, your encounters with uh, Martin Luther King, and then your experience that you talked about in law school, um, how did it influence you then later as a leader? Did it influence you towards um, uh, instituting more public service uh, parts of your curriculum uh, or, or opportunities for your graduates? Um, yeah, well, I, I don't know whether it was, con I, I wouldn't say I con it consciously affected anything, mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure it, it did shape who I was and what mm -hmm. what I thought was the direction we should be going in. Um, you know, in answer to the earlier question about faculty and, and um, when I got to, um, when I got to Rutgers, um, this is a little bit of history about the two campuses. Newark had been uh, a, a very, it was probably, you know, sort of the most socially uh, progressive and active uh, law school, public law school in the country in the 60s and uh, 70s. And they had a tradition of activism uh, there and clinical, act, clinical programs that were mm -hmm. suing the army and uh, uh, and, you know, the, the school, uh, the, the Abbott case they were involved in um, in, um, in uh, New Jersey. So uh, Camden, when it broke off from Newark um, and became independent in 67, 68, the first dean had come out of Columbia and he had a very different idea. I mean, he modeled the law school after what were then the elite privates. So, um, and to some extent, I've never, I never was able before he died to act, actually ask him, but it seems to me that you could argue that the um, Camden was sort of the anti-Newark in, in, in wow. that sense. So he had, we had no clinical mm -hmm. programs. Uh, wow. We had, uh, mm -hmm. uh, this, as I said, late sixties, early seventies. And, um, it, it, it sort of, but he modeled it off, off of the sort of elite um, uh, academic law schools. You know, uh, I mean, our teaching loads were sim more similar to Yale and Chicago than they were to Connecticut or Maryland. Um, and uh, what was expected of publication was similar. Mm -hmm. um, and so... When I got there, the dean before me, Roger Dennis, uh, who then became the provost and hired me, uh, he had started the clinical programs in, in the early 90s at, oh, at okay. Camden. And we had a sort of nascent pro bono program that was very good, but very small. And um, I guess during my deanship, because I you know, again, I thought it was the right thing to do and I didn't do this single-handedly, uh, but uh, we greatly expanded the clinical offerings and the public interest, the public service component and really invested uh, Eve Clothen, who uh, uh, had been head of, uh, you may know, VIP in uh, Philadelphia, the volunteer uh, lawyers program in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, she came and she, when she retired from that or, or resigned from that, she came over to the law school and, and directed our program. And she and then Jill Friedman, her okay. successor, have, have just done a great job. We uh, uh, got a number of SCADNs and um, Equal Justice Foundation and, and uh, those kinds of fellowships for our students. And it is a, a central part of the law school now. So yes, I mean, it. I, I'm not, as I said, I, 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 I mean, clearly um, the experiences at Wesleyan exposed me to what the benefits of diversity are in the classroom, just, you know, having uncomfortable yet frank and 
uh, uh, conversations with people you wouldn't otherwise have conversations with, uh, but also uh, the kind of public service ethos uh, did carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to. Um, I think I'm glad you mentioned the benefits of of diversification because I think that's very important, not just in academia, but also in the workplace. You know, they talk about the research really shows that when you have a diverse uh, group of employees, that they're more creative, they're more innovative, and and in fact, retention rates can be a little bit more than if, if it's a homogeneous workforce population. So you got to really um, work towards diversity. And then once you get them on board, you have to make them feel included. And that's the big, that I think that's the, the real work. And so you mentioned a strategy uh, in terms of, uh, you know, recruiting um, employees uh, in, in the, um, the law school, as well as the admission practices to increase, you know, uh, admissions of, of, of uh, students of color. And one of those strategies was making the cultural connection. You mentioned bringing in the, uh, the attorney uh, right. that worked with Stevie Wonder, and that was a great strategy to connect, uh, you know, the students to, you know, because sometimes uh, if you're in a room full, I went to uh, SUNY New Paltz, the State University of New Paltz, then, you know, upstate New York, I'm, I'm a city kid coming from Brooklyn, going all the way upstate in the Adirondacks, and a lot of students didn't look like me in my classrooms. And so I found a cultural connection through the Black Student Union association the bsu and so a lot of campuses have those type of cultural connections as a strategy to you know have uh you know have students from diverse backgrounds feel connected so that's one strategy is there is there another strategy you can share with our listeners and our viewers particularly those you know in the workforce on how to really um strategically promote diversity equity and inclusion in the workplace to kind of create this sense of uh, belonging and inclusion amongst their, um, the workforce? Well, I think, um, you know, to a certain extent, it's um, at least in the, in the university setting, sort of as, yeah. as you mentioned, um, it, 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 it's got to be in some sense bottom up, but encouraged by top down. So, so you have to, you have to have, you have to get a sufficient uh, community together so that people don't feel isolated. So that's, that's strategy. I mean, our, I think our most successful, one of our graduates from those early years is now the first African-American woman on the New Jersey Supreme court. Um, And, and, and that's not, uh, I, I mean, and and she's had a I mean she's an amazing person who has had an amazing career, um, and uh, but it she was part of a really large very supportive mutually supportive uh, uh, cohort, um, yeah, sort of a couple of classes around her, but we also provided um, you know the resources so that they could have. I mean, did we give everybody everything that they wanted? No, the budget was limited. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we made an effort to try to provide um, resources so that they could have uh, the, 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 the moot court team. They could have, they could go to national conferences when those kinds of things. Uh, and um, I think for a while we were, Getting the temple and pen and um, and um, uh, well, was before Drexel, so I guess Villanova uh, mm-hmm. black student groups uh, together, um, and again hosting those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah. and it it's it, I think it 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 you have to it is a combination of both uh, letting the students figure out what will be what 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 will be helpful to them, but also providing resources, whether, um, and now we, the, the law school, both in Newark, because Newark has had this for a long time, um, a minority, there's a, a there's a minority, um, it's sort of playing the same role that Teresa did at, at Northwestern, uh, but, uh, but to help to organize and, and get them uh, together. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think we see in the literature that talks about good 
um, allyship work, accountable allyship work. And um, you mentioned a, a billionaire that was in connection with, uh, I believe her name was Teresa. And, and that's, those are the type of, those are the type of connections, I think, in the resources that are essential. The, the monetary resources are, are critical. That's without, uh, without question. But also having the social and the intellectual power and the capital to connect, you know, students of color to, to those type of uh, external resources that is as equally essential um, to providing the funding to allow their, you know, the BSU programs and stuff like that to strive. So, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned also, Ray, that it's a, it, it has to also be a top-down process. And then your, it sounds like, like what, what um, John was alluding to, how did your experience in, in you know, um, being involved in, you know, civil rights and being connected with that stuff early on at your time at Wesleyan, it seems like that kind of infused um, in some of, the, some of the ways you approach your work as a leader and, and the dean of law school to promote some of these things that was successful and have the first African-American female come out of uh, Rutgers school, uh, Law School. Um, that's awesome, really awesome. I'd like to, to reach back to another thing that we talked about in part one and uh, or, or relates to something that you didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, and that is um, uh, the Helena Baptist Church. Mm. Uh, as a historian, <laughs> but also as a resident of the county. Could you talk a little bit about that and your involvement with it? Sure. Um, so um, Helen is, is unusual uh, in, in, in lots of ways, but um, it is the, what could be considered the mother church of what is the largest African-American uh, still today uh, religious uh, denomination in the country, the National Baptist Convention. Um, and the, so uh, there was a minister of this church, the Centennial Baptist Church in Helena, um, uh, E.C. Morris, uh, Reverend E.C. Morris. And he is, uh, he uh, was in, from about 1870 to 1920, he was at this uh, church. And um, he helped found that it's the first African-American uh, college west of the Mississippi. Uh, he, he, it was a Baptist college that they started in Little Rock. Um, and he was, a, he was a, an ex, I think was actually born to a slave family. And uh, he, was, um, he, he was a Lincoln Republican. And uh, so very active in Republican politics in the, uh, through the 70s, a delegate to several national conventions. Um, he's a friend of uh, Booker T. Washington, who spoke from mm. the pulpit several times, I think, and other civil rights leaders. And so you have um, this, this church, which was also architecturally interesting because it was one of the few examples in the late 19th century where it was designed by an African-American architect with Reverend Morris himself. So it, it's an African-American church designed by an African-American. And um, it, it was, um, it began, the congregation began to uh, uh, have uh, difficulties in the probably 80s, uh, 1980s. Uh, and uh, it's on the National uh, uh, Register of Historical Landmark. And um, it, it sort of the congregation, it, it ceased having enough members and it was beginning to kind of fall down, uh, have problems. And uh, a group tried to, a uh, group of uh, uh, parishioners tried to, made a heroic effort and did manage to do some work on the inside, but they uh, failed for various reasons. Uh, to be to get enough money to to save it, and after we did the memorial that we talked about yesterday to the Elaine massacre, a group a biracial group uh, thought that we should, as as both it was the right thing to do, and also for um, uh, economic health of the community, uh, uh, we should try to save this church and and see what we could do. And um, so uh, what, uh, what happened then was 
about 18 months ago, a storm hit and knocked down half of it. Um, oh my goodness. It's all hanging by a thread. And it became obvious that the only the the only source of the amount of money, probably probably seven to twelve million dollars, I mean somewhere, wow. depending on what you do with it. The only source of that is the federal government um, and uh, the National Park Service. So I've 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 been working with uh, an ex uh, senator, um, Mark Pryor from Arkansas, and uh, the current Arkansas delegation um, to uh, Senator Bozeman and Congressman Crawford, who's from our district, uh, to try to get the Park Service uh, to. Uh, take it over. And it's a complicated process because the only way to do it is through the Antiquities Act. I mean, the only way to do it quickly, if you go through the congressional route of of bringing in a national park, making it a part of a national park, that can take three to 10 years and we don't have that. It's gonna be rubble. I mean, if if Hurricane Ida had gone north instead of turning east, it oh, might yeah. might be wow. rubble. It might wow. be rubble today. So we're 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 trying to get the administration uh, to to do this. And I I don't know the exact numbers, but there is money in the infrastructure bill, uh, both for increasing the number of national parks and also for African a, a separate line item for uh, uh, African American history or wow. history of equity. Um, and so we are we are trying to tell everything we know to do politically. Um, uh, and uh, um, there's a, 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 a I mean, we're, we're, we, we hope uh, to be able to to get some movement fairly quickly. Mm. We're not we're not sure yet. But this I mean, I, I don't know that I actually said this last time. If we're able to pull this off, uh, you could bring the courthouse where the the uh, massacre trial, to, where, where the Lane 12 were tried, you could bring the memorial, this church. And what you have really is a sort of more comprehensive history of Jim Crow, uh, mm-hmm. because what you have is then the... Uh, uh, Elaine is the social political side of Jim Crow and economic, social, political, and economic side. This is the religious uh, and cultural side of Jim Crow. Um, and so you, you, you'd have in one, one area uh, a, a much more comprehensive uh, picture of mm-hmm. what, what Jim Crow was. Mm. So is there... How how the I think this is, is a no this is a noble um, uh, social justice effort that that you are in, in, in embarking upon and thank you so much for your, your service to preserve some of these historical landmarks and and, and in that um, how how are the, how is the community kind of rallying around you know the, this effort what's what's, what's yeah happening? I think the community the, the community is very supportive politically the political I mean unlike when 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 the uh, memorial went up, as I mentioned last time, I think we had opposition on yeah. sort of on the left and the right. Th- there's there's no opposition to this except, um, you know, some of the former parishioners. I mean, I, I, I mean, the African American federal judge and his brother, uh, whose grandfather was one of the ministers in this church. He he's taking the lead on this. He's the chair of the committee and all, but he's limited as to what he can do politically because he's a federal judge. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I mean, I, I I think there's some caution around what what are these you know white people doing? But uh, uh, to be honest, but I think uh, we had a public meeting uh, two weeks ago, uh, and we got about forty people on a very cold. <laughs> Uh, night at five o'clock on a Friday, um, we got about 50 people to come out and um, uh, it was, they were enthusiastic about let's do what we need to do to save this. And uh, uh, I think uh, the one person who was sort of a dissenter, who was one of the leaders of the failed effort before, um, what she was actually demanding or 
wanted us to do were all things that we, we were on board with. I mean, you know, right. telling, telling the story accurately and um, yeah. giving credit to the to the to That's, the prior and and making sure yeah. that the hiring. I mean, we if, if the Park Service takes it over, they'll do the hiring, but that African Americans are hired to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, know. that's yeah. I'm glad you said that's where I was getting to because you know that that whole concept, nothing about us without us. You know, making sure and you mentioned that you know someone was questioning what what are the intentions of a group of white folks coming to try to save this church. So I'm glad you 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 all uh, strategically thought about en- enlisting the voices and the opinions. Right. And the thoughts of uh, people in the community and also putting in, uh, you know, strategies to hire persons of color and, and keeping all that, some of that economic uh, vibrancy within within the community. So that's, that's, I've never that's, heard that expression before. Nothing about us without us. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> a, it's a community engagement slogan. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I th- this is such an interesting intersection of, of um, religion, culture. Yeah art history politics right history yeah. i mean it really yeah, you, the way you blended them all to, i mean they really are blended all together in this county of arkansas that uh, before i met you never heard of well and i should also i should also <laughs> say that uh uh it is one of the, i don't know whether i mentioned this before um it, it is one of the home of the blues i mean um oh yeah uh, right boy williams music. i mean so uh, music you have, yeah yeah you have, and, and it's also the site of a major civil war battle. So, uh, I mean, it, it's a, it's, it's an interesting county sure. in and of itself. It's a microcosm. Yeah. But, yeah, really. uh, um, well, before we conclude, I, I'd like to uh, cover one other subject that I think sure. is a natural for this discussion and taking off your academic hat and putting on your Jewish leadership hat. You've shared with with us that you've uh, president of your synagogue, but um, that's an indicator to me that you you are uh, concerned about Jewish affairs. And um, you know the uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, and just a few days before that there was a horrible incident in uh, Texas uh, at a synagogue. And I, I wonder if you could comment on that, and also on your your uh, your role as a leader at your synagogue and things you might have encountered that would be, you know, helpful for our audience to know. Well, um, I mean, when I, I'm sure as the people in um, outside Fort Worth felt too, um, you know, you sort of live in a, a bubble. I mean, uh, Montgomery County is, uh, is not without faults, but, uh, but, 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 you know, it it it's very congenial. I mean, there there are what six six or seven, or probably more in the whole county, uh, synagogues and all. So I mean, it, there there's a a uh, sizable. One doesn't feel uh, alone uh, in the Jewish community, and in certainly in this part of uh, of uh, the county, and I think also in in, in you know around Bluebell and those areas. So. Um, you know, when there were, I mean, I guess in the last 10 years, I mean, in terms of incidents, you know, there somebody um, painted swastikas on, uh, in, I think it was in Havertown, on some garbage cans in Havertown. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, one doesn't know, or these kids who don't really, you know, don't really know what they're doing by, by putting up a Nazi symbol, I mean, what it, what it really means. Uh, or not, or is this really, I mean, it, it should be treated as a hate crime, is a hate crime. Uh, mm-hmm. But but um, I think after um, a couple of incidents and most notably uh, Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, um, you know, you realize that you don't know what, what's, you know, you, you don't know what you, what, what you don't know. And um, so uh, actually, the president before me, um, I mean, we, we uh, I mean, it, let me stop for a second and say, if you go to Europe, if you've ever uh, gone to a synagogue in Europe, but there is elaborate, I mean, I mean we're talking about elaborate security. And, uh, you know, there's usually a guardhouse a hundred yards away 
uh, and a kind of perimeter and, and you, it's not just a straight walk to the, to the, into the synagogue from the street. It, you, you know, it's kind of a windy mm. uh, way. And, and there are people, there are armed guards, uh, both inside and, and out. Uh, this is true in France and Italy and, um, um, any number of countries. Um, and so, um, I, uh, when the president before me, um, I think we uh, began to have the discussion about whether we should have a guard. I mean, we never had a guard, and what sort of security cameras we have. The 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 Homeland Security uh, had a program where religious institutions could apply for grants, and we got one to for uh, they were distributed through the state where you uh, could put up security cameras. Um, and we, we, we did that. And then uh, we hired a guard. There were serious discussions about, uh, about whether, um, wh whether the guard should be armed or not. And, uh, uh, you know, a number of us, I mean, I, um, a number of us felt, I mean, I, was, I felt like this originally too, that, um, uh, you know, guns lead to trouble. Uh, not not prevent trouble, but um, you know it 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 um, it it's not apparent whether they're armed. In fact, I'm not even sure whether they're armed in, anymore. But um, but uh, we we had to step up security, and uh, there are you know uh, in general two kinds of threats. Uh, Squirrel Hill was a a, a right wing fanatic who was yelling about. Uh, um, and the, the the Charlottesville, it was sort of similar to the Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. uh, Jews yeah. will not replace us. And then there there are Middle Eastern issues, as it, as was true in uh, in uh, uh, Colleyville, I guess, um, uh, two days ago. Uh, although again, that seemed to be more. I mean, the reports seem to be that it's more mental illness than an organized terrorist attack. I mean that that he, uh, the gunman seems to uh, have been having um, uh, extreme psychological issues. Um, and so- he didn't, go to a, he didn't go to an Episcopalian church. No, 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 but he, I mean- And he didn't come to a Baptist church either. Right. right. So, so when I think about, you know, I think about reusing, and not to diffuse, I maybe at some point there may be some mental health issues, However, I think there's a cognitive conscious decision on behalf of some of these individuals right. who are engaged in these behaviors that there are targeted behaviors. And you think about right. um, the young boy who who killed those those folks uh, in the black church. Right. Absolutely. That, I mean, he does have some mental health issues. However, it, right. it still doesn't. Uh, uh, no, uh, I mean, exactly. There are there are these, yeah. you know, these stereotypes. I mean, this this guy thought that. I mean, I think the rabbis said that uh, uh, the gunman, you know, thought that the Jews ran the world and uh, and the United States, and one call could get his uh, the 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 prisoner out of jail. Uh, you know that that they had rabbi, the chief rabbi, not understanding that Jews yeah, don't have the head rabbi. Yeah, saying that the person had mental problems—that's too bad, but it's a smokescreen. Right. Yeah. Uh, especially when yeah. you you see that all across the country this is happening, and um, yeah, the thing that the thing that kind of I think impressed me about this particular situation was the testimony of the hostages, particularly the um, not not just the not just the rabbi, but the the fellow who was on today, who was vice president of the synagogue or whatever, talking about the training. Right. Now, the idea, I mean, our church has, has done some security work, but it's really under the radar screen. But the idea of being trained, mm -hmm. this is like our kids telling us, or I mean, our grandkids telling us that they, um, the, the drills that they do at school. Right. right. Active uh, shooting. My, my, I remember when she was like uh, eight years old, my granddaughter telling me how happy she was that she got the second best place to hide. Mm. Right. You know, right. so, so the That's fact right. that, not, yeah. but, but, but this is different because this is targeted against a right. religious group. 
Right. Yeah. And, and John, John, you remember when we were in school, Ray, Ray, you can uh, you probably attest to this too. The threats of society in terms of when we were young, young, young people in school, I'm just thinking about the students and how all the things that they have to contend with the stress factors. We had fire drills, right? So that, that was the only drill we had was fire drills. Now the students have fire drills. They have active shooting drills. And now even to go to church is becoming that we have to have trainings on how to protect ourselves. I think that a lot of the a lot of the anti-Semitic narrative that has been promoted, unfortunately, in the past uh, few years yeah. uh, in this country has really created what I call narrative narcissists. These are people who really like latch onto these false narratives of any group, and 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 then and then they really they they play out these the mindset of their thinking, and they and they bring it to reality. And as a result of that, people are harmed, people are killed, property is damaged. And we just, we just, I mean, we got, we got to find a way where uh, we can bring some social harmony back because claiming mental health in some cases is true, but in, in all, in all cases, uh, I don't think uh, mental health will, will warrant that. I, I believe no. like John said, there's a smoke, smoke screen. Dylan Roof, in my opinion, if you have a website, Dylan Roof is a young boy comes right. to my memory now that did the shooting uh, of the uh, African-American church. You go to his website, he, if you could fill out applications to get firearms, I mean, you got some type of cogn cognition right. and, and intellect right. to do all of the things that he was able to do. So uh, I really, I, I pray for, you know, my, my Jewish brothers, brothers and sisters, because this is an attack, uh, you know, not just on religion, but on people, on humanity. And you shouldn't feel fearful um, you know, when you're going to. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. No, I, and, uh, so let me, let me, let me just say one thing. John and I are old enough that we actually had uh, to hide under our desks for nuclear bombs. There's another one. So, yeah, we, 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 we were, we were in the fifties. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one. So look, I look, look where we at now. Now we, yeah, yeah. right, right. We, 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 we had to worry about the Russians, uh, but but let me let me uh, let me tell one story that may uh, what what you hit on uh, Kiva, that I think is true um, about I guess it was during during the Obama presidency uh, my wife and I were visiting uh, Helena and as I said it was a civil war site and the state had recently opened uh, a new kind of little mini park where uh, one of the battlement areas was. And, and so we, we, we were, I hadn't been up on this hill for 50 years. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a park or anything. It was, we used to just climb the hills when I was little. But, um, but um, we were up there and we're reading these plaques and there was a, a, a white guy sort of in overalls. I mean, it's sort of a Bubba looking figure uh, who was reading the, the, the plaque at the same time we were. And he said, you know, it's a really, because Helena, I mean, Helena, the, the Battle of Helena was won by the, by the North. Uh, it would have been a, it was, it fell the same day Vicksburg did. So that's why it was, it was not a significant battle, but it was, it would have been if, if Vicksburg had held on a few more days. But um, uh, so this guy is reading the plaque and he goes, he, he says, it's a shame we lost that battle," he said. It, it, "If we if we hadn't, maybe we wouldn't have that." And he paused. He didn't say the word. He said, "In the White House," and my wife mm. freaked out. And I, I knew the answer to this. Or the handle of the situation was just to say, mm, mm -hmm, "Whatever," you know, just to get out as soon as possible. He got in his car and left. And he, when he was walking off, I turned to my wife and I said, that's a sign of social progress. And she said, she looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, he knew that he couldn't say the word in front of people he didn't know. There was right. a, he didn't have the license to say that, mm -hmm. what he was thinking. But I think as you were saying <laughs> today, that, that's that's gone. I mean, after four years of 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 the Trump White House, where anything could be said and it was all legitimate, 
and they're they're good people on both sides, you know, in yeah. Charlottesville, or you know, these are good people on January sixth, and that yeah. that sort of thing is said, and then you have people in Congress who are reinforcing that stuff. Every there's there's no there, there, it took us, um, you know, a hundred years to build up to where it was, you know, kids had it drilled in them that what you say matters, you know, what yeah. you talk about matters. And that's right. You know, it, but it, it clearly was only, you know, literally skin deep. I mean, it was not, you know, it wasn't a lesson really ingrained, but it, but they knew enough. And it is a sign of social progress that we got to a point where at least you knew you couldn't just say whatever you wanted to say to whomever yeah. you wanted to say it. And that's gone. And then whether it takes us 50 years to build it back is another issue. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I agree with you. And I, I would, I would also say that, you know, our thoughts, you know, our, you know, our thoughts, if they're not checked, so I'm glad he, I'm, I'm glad the guy was able to pause and not say, you know, right. say that derogatory term. And so that, and so that is progress. However, Earl Nightingale, a 1950s prolific motivational speaker said, and I use this quote a lot, not because I think words are very powerful, but our thoughts are as equally powerful. And he says that we become what we think about. So even though the guy didn't verbalize it, he's thinking, oh yeah. And as a result of that, he's gonna have, he's gonna engage in some type of racist. Uh, behavior down the road if he doesn't continue to check those thoughts. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of these, these mass shootings and these, these um, you know, racially biased incidents is that they're not checking their thoughts. And it's like a volcano. After a while, it's just, uh, they're just sitting there and then, then you have right. the rhetoric in society and the political rhetoric, the things they're seeing on TV, repetition decides persuasion. And so they're repeatedly hearing this negative stuff about people of color, anti-Semitic sentiment, and it's over and over and over and they're thinking it. And then eventually, um, you know, people go out and do these, um, you know, unimaginable acts. Right. Uh, and um, so I think, um, you know, when, when, when someone who's white commits these crimes, we want to, we, we will, sometimes we want to, we want to try to figure out a way to not give them full accountability. And then on the other side, when person of color and most people of color, we don't do, you know, most, most African-Americans, we don't go and shoot up whole churches. We may, we may, we may do uh, you know, black on black crime, but we don't do those type of things. But if we were, I could only imagine right. the, the labeling of that behavior. Right. Um, and so I think there's an inequality, even in doing these, some of these, um, some of these criminal behaviors that we need to, you know, uh, continue to watch and be mindful. It's, it's just not good right. for society right. to go in a church and, and hold people hostage and shoot up. And then, you know, we want to, we want to kind of, kind of not, not, not sugarcoat it, but kind of downplay that person's behavior. That's crime. And, and he should be treated as a criminal as such. No, no. Um, I, and I, I don't disagree with that. I, and I, what, what, uh, what uh, I guess I was more focused on was not trying to excuse the behavior, but, how bizarre what what his thoughts were i mean as expressed to the rabbi and and the the congregants about what he was seeing i mean there was i mean dylan ruth i think is different i mean he sat there praying with these people yeah. for for yeah. you know an hour i mean he that was cold-blooded murder uh, as right. far as i'm concerned whatever yeah. his mental but this guy thought that by you know going in there he could get this person the the his "Quote unquote," sister released, and that the and the mechanisms by which that would occur, which only comes from um, it may be mental illness, but it also going back to your other point, it's sort of indoctrination of what you know. You know, somebody's telling him that Jews are all powerful, and you know how he yeah. interprets that. It, yeah. it's, you know, and and uh, yeah, um, I don't see. I agree. I don't discount the mental illness piece. I just, it's not the, in my opinion, it's not the primary agitator. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I agree. So I agree. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah. It's the, no, it's the anti, it's the, it's the, it's the racist tendency. It's the racist mindset. It's the belief system that, 
you know, over and over, if you keep thinking like that, yeah, it's going to create some type of mental instability. And that mental instability is going to provoke you to engage in some type of behavior. Yeah. And certainly the guy at Squirrel Hill, when he was talking about, you know, the, the it was an anti-immigrant, anti-immigration and anti-immigrant screed he was uh, yep. reciting as he was going and shooting people. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, well, it, um, I'm going to resist the temptation to uh, uh, <laughs> ask you to come to a part three. We'll have to. Okay. <laughs> but so we're just kind of warming up. But but th this is we've covered is a good. lot of ground tonight, okay. and we did part one. So again, those of you who uh, missed part part one, maybe this will uh, interest you in going back and and uh, listening to that. But but Ray, thanks very very much for all yeah. the time you've given. It's been very very uh, educational. I've learned a lot. And um, hopefully for our audience, it's been meaningful as well. Well, I, yeah. I, 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 I thank you. And, and both of you are uh, engaged in a wonderful project and you're doing it well. And, and uh, well, thank you. I, I, I hope I uh, wish you uh, continued uh, good success. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to model. We're basically we're trying to model the, the expectation of what society should look like here. Two guys from opposite racial uh, backgrounds, two guys from different age. And we, we just, we just, we just want the world to be a better place. John has grandchildren. I have young, young children. And I want in the next 20 years, I don't, I want my kids to feel safe going to school and going to church. And, sure. and so, right. you know, that's what this is all about. So, and Ray, I just want to uh, say before we sign off, I thank you so much for your transparency. I thank you so much for your level of vulnerability. I thank you for lending your insight and your uh, your knowledge around the, the the topics that we talked about, and, and thank you you know for the back and forth debate because that's where as we talk about in this podcast, it's not about uh, confrontation, it's all about conversation. And I and I hope folks that uh, have been listening to this conversation got something out of it because I've learned a lot. And I thank you so much for for coming okay. back and, and joining us again. Thank you guys. All right. All right. All right. Bye bye. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.